power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech Podcast feed. Legendary films and TV shows. Or just pure shit. The legendary host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. Sovereign at the movies. that some call the best in the world. And that's why he wears whoo, the belt of the podcast champion, baby. It is the golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, Dr. Brian Sovereign here for another Sovereign at the movies. And once again, getting in one of these episodes, because I mean, I'm surprised and not surprised at just how popular. Now, the reason I'm not surprised at how popular these episodes are uh, really comes from that. I mean, I think so many people, especially since 2020 um, have really re-entrenched in a lot of entertainment, you know, and, and like are getting back. Some people turn pop culture into more of a pastime uh, than they had in a long time, I think in 2020. And so, you know, people wanting to, have whatever kind of entertainment and, and revisiting what came of your, because for, you know, a good year or so, um, there was no, there wasn't much, or at least not the usual deluge of, um, of pop culture entries, right. Of movies coming out in theaters of new TV shows, even video games, whatever. Um, so people were kind of going to the back catalog, much like the entertainment industry itself was. And I think, you know, for many people as a coping mechanism, and I want to be empathetic to this, even if I do take some umbrage, um, for many people, you know, that nostalgia and looking back on times, uh, what they consider to be better times, um, you know, I, I certainly think there, there is plenty of that as well. Now, me, when I talk about these things, and I guess sort of where I take umbrage, these are things you know, when I get into top eights or when I'm talking about some, you know, classic film or whatever, even new, well, not so much the new stuff, but especially classic films on Sovereign at the Movies, I am not coming from a position of nostalgia. I am coming from a position of what I still watch to this day and still, you know, take inspiration and uh, enjoyment and everything else out of as if it came out today. Okay, so that's not nostalgia, right? 
nostalgia, and we, as we've talked about on previous Sovereign at the Movies, nostalgia is, you know, kind of reminiscing and taking some comfort from uh, from the past that is no longer. For me, it's not my past. It's still my present and a very real part of my future. So it's, I do not engage in nostalgia. I'm not saying there's anything invalid about engaging in nostalgia. I am just saying that I look at none of this stuff with, uh, uh, you know, nostalgia glasses on. Okay. Because it's not my past. It's still my present. It's never not been my present. It's never not been a part of my makeup. It's never not been a part of my life. You know, just recently in the, in the sovereign tech telegram group, which if you want to join uh, link is in the show notes. In there, I shared a picture of, you know, this entertainment center that I, uh, that I had built that, uh, Ellen Sovereign and I, we had put together and on there, I showed, you know, like my Funko pop collection is there. I mean, stuff that, that I've been collecting over the years, I don't really like buy new shit in that regard anymore, but, um, anyway, all, all my retro consoles are there as well. You know, you, you can see that and look, I mean, take a look at that. Notice there's no PlayStation five. There's no series X. There's none of that. All right. You'll see an N64. You'll see, you know, a PlayStation two, you'll see whatever. And look, I play that Nintendo 64 as if it's just as valid a system today as it was in the 1990s. I get it why we can technically call it retro gaming, but for me, it's present gaming. It's future gaming still, because have you played all the great games on the N64? Likely not. I don't know just about, I don't really know any one person who has played every great game and beat them to completion on the N64. Okay. To say nothing of the other systems. I got a Sega Saturn there. There's, uh, you know, uh, there's an Xbox, the original Xbox, um, go down the list of it. So I say this just, just to point out, because I also get annoyed, you know, so this is why I'm not surprised at how popular these are. Why I am surprised at how popular these sovereign at the movies episodes are comes down to, um, I mean, entertainment and talking about entertainment in general, from books to comic books to, you know, music and movies and TV shows and whatever, everything in between. Um, you know, that's always been a part of, of Sovereign Tech's DNA. So it's not anything new. But, you know, most people that talk about these things, especially like, you know, older stuff, quote unquote, retro stuff. Um, you know, they do it out of that nostalgia, like I was talking about. And, you know, you have lots of guys on YouTube who talk about these things through the lens of nostalgia. And frankly, like that pisses me off because let's not talk about this stuff. Like, yeah, it was great 30 years ago or 40 years ago, you know, or yeah. Oh, you should check this out now. You know, you know, like, let's talk about it. Like this has always been here, always will be. And it's just as valid as any new horse shit that comes out of, you know, out of Disney's ass. Okay. And you, you know, let's, let's keep these, these films competing. When a movie comes out, it's not over, right? You, you can keep enjoying a film. Uh, you can keep talking about a film. You can, you know, do yearly rewatches or more if you want to do that. So I just, the nostalgia game, I get it. It's valid, but it annoys the fuck out of me. Okay. And I'm just kind of surprised how popular sovereign at the movies is because I don't come at it from that nostalgia view. 
which is what I think is actually popular. I talk about it like, yeah, no, it was great. Then it's fucking great. Now it's been great for 40 years or 50 years or however, you know, long. I mean, one of the things that, that still keeps me attracted to star Wars is that like the, the franchise as a whole still treats the original trilogy, which started all the way back in 1977. It treats those movies as if they came out today. Right. I mean, yes, there's nostalgia that gets, you know, glommed onto them as well. Um, there is, you know, a reverence that, that comes with time that gets put on them, but they are still as valid to everything that happens in star Wars today as, you know, as it was whatever, 40 years ago. Right. And so there's this inherent respect and these movies don't get treated. All right. Like, yeah, okay, they came out 40 years ago or 50 years, well, not 50 yet, but they still get treated as if they matter, as if they speak to today, if they ha- as, as if they, you know, well, again, just that they matter, right, to the franchise as a whole. Like, I guess you can appreciate Star Wars um, without the original trilogy or even the prequel trilogy and, you know, and enjoy what's coming out today. I don't know, like the High Republic stuff or whatever, but you know, you don't really get Star Wars unless you absolutely watch those those first three films, you know, the original trilogy. And certainly I think that the prequel trilogy has become just as, you know, not not as revered, but as big a deal in the franchise. And I think it might be the great differentiator between Star Wars and the Marvel Universe, like why I despise the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because, you know, yeah, OK, all the movies since Iron Man matter, um, but nothing before mattered. I get it that it's not necessarily in the continuity or whatever, but I mean, look, even with star Wars, they're still pulling from legends by the day, right. From, from the old EU. And yeah, I mean, that, that's what annoys me is that the, the Marvel, the Marvel movies pay no fealty and would love to just pretend that nothing else matters. You know, when Marvel has, you know, a 60, 70, nay, 80 year history, right? Going all the way back to the first Namer comic. But I'm pretty sure Disney uses those old comic books to as toilet paper because they clearly don't give a shit. But amazingly, in Star Wars, all that old stuff still matters today. It's still relevant. It's still and it still gets treated as, yeah, this is a part of the present. It does not get treated with, I mean, at least within the franchise overall, it does not get treated as nostalgia. Um, I mean, certainly Disney takes advantage of nostalgia when it comes to marketing. I'm not going to debate that, but it itself is not nostalgia. It itself is fresh and, you know, Empire Strikes Back is fresh and relevant. But that said, this Sovereign at the Movies, to me, is all about the fresh and relevant. What we have here. Um, is one by request. This got emailed to me, questions at SovereignTech.com. Uh, and essentially the email went as, as follows that Stallion, okay, like your top, you know, saying, God, oh, the top eight's great, Sovereign of the Movies, but what do you consider the benchmarks? What do you consider the best movies ever made? And, you know, when I read that email, I said to myself, the first thing I thought was, I had to have already done this. (laughs) Like, There's no way I didn't do a top eight of my favorite movies. But when I looked into it, I realized that, boy, it's been (laughs) more than a few years since I have done it. 
and you know, in sovereign techs near, near 10 year history, um, you know, 10 years is a lot of time. And when I looked at the original list, I was like, yeah, you know, my opinions have changed. Not that any of the movies I talked about in the past as being the best, um, you know, are no longer the best. Like I somehow disagreed and, or changed my mind on some of them by no means. No. Um, but my top eight does look very different than say my, my favorite movies list from, you know, almost 10 years ago. So when I realized that and I got the email in, I said, you know what? Fine. Let's do it. Let's do a sovereign top eight around what I consider to be the best movies of all time. And this is a list that has that, that, that crosses genres, right? Um, I'm not going to include any animated movies here, though. Certainly heavy metal or fire and ice, uh, could, could easily be, you know, like in, in some kind of top eight. Um, there are no animated films here to be clear. The other thing to be clear on, and this is a rule I've made for many years, most of my life, that is if a movie, and this is actually this, this rule alone has caused a lot of shifts in what I would call my favorite movies. But the rule is that anything that is part of a franchise, as in there's like sequels or prequels or whatever, um, I won't call my favorite movie because in my opinion, like the best film ever that you say that you, you know, it has to stand on its own. For example, take like the empire strikes back, right? Which we mentioned earlier or return of the Jedi, which is my favorite star Wars movie. They don't stand on their own. Like empire strikes back. You kind of need to know more of like, you need to know a new hope return of the Jedi. You need to know what happened in empire strikes back. So see their films, they can't really be the best because they're part of a larger story to really appreciate everything that goes on in the film. Even though empire strikes back, like say Terminator two are perfect movies, meaning that they're perfectly executed, right? Um, like another movie that would easily that, that at one point was my number one, uh, that they had to get moved off because then sequels got made that being the matrix, right? The matrix is other than that one scene where Neo is, you know, backflipping out of, uh, you know, out, out of the, 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 the subway or whatever there. And you can see the wires. You can see where Keanu, Re- Keanu Reeves grabbed the wires, uh, certainly like on the DVD and definitely on the Blu-ray and so on. Um, other than that, perfectly executed film looks incredible. Like, like there's, there's no flaws in, in, in that picture, but it's part of a larger universe now. So, you know, I, I don't put it at the top of my list, but it could easily sit there. It would have been one of my past, uh, number ones. So there are a lot of movies that would normally like take up these, this, this top eight that don't because you know, again, because they're part of a larger franchise. Um, I mean, easily, well, here, like aliens, right. Um, that, that would be there, you know, say like the Rocky movies, like Rocky three could be in, in my top eight movies of all time. But again, you, you know, you need more of the story. Um, the movie that would never move from the number one spot just never will. Uh, And if I didn't have this rule in place, this would always be the answer. 
Okay. It would even far outweigh the matrix uh, or any other film that I could put at number one. And that is star Trek, the motion picture. Now I kind of feel like, I mean, like the matrix, you actually could watch star Trek, the motion picture without any prior knowledge, without, you know, knowing about captain Kirk and, and you know, and whoever else, but the movie certainly means a whole hell of a lot more when you really understand the friendship and relationships between the varying crew members. But Star Trek, the motion picture is, you know, just the greatest movie ever made. Just flat, just that flat out. That's it. That's the end of the story. <laughs> okay. Greatest movie ever made. Um, but, you know, with that rule in place, that's not so. So we're going to get into my top eight. And these are all movies that, at least at this point in 2021, are standalone. Even though some of these films, there have been conversations around making, you know, some kind of sequel or prequel to them. And frankly, I hope that never happens for any of them. Um, well, that's not entirely true, but we'll, we'll get into that. Now, the other part of this is like many top eights where I say, look, if you're in the top eight, you're essentially number one, you're just number one amongst, or you're just, you know, a number in a top eight amongst other number ones, right? Um, that is largely true for this list, except for the top three, the top three, I'm going to say are three, two, one, you know, like, like number one is the best, the best of the best, uh, boy, those movies could be on. No, <laughs> I, best of the best one and two were awesome. But anyway, that that's a whole other story. Um, so number three, number two, and number one are exactly where they should be. Everything else again, still ultimately all of these could be number one because they're that good. Um, but we'll, we'll break it down. Let's do it. Let's get into our top eight here as requested by Sovereign Tech listeners. And of course you can always email questions at SovereignTech.com, um, you know, to, to, to get in your requests of episodes. Also, people will often ask in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group, uh, just go to the link in the show notes and you can find the link for the Telegram group. I mean, you can't miss it. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and you can join there and you can always just, you know, kind of at me, uh, on it at sovereign and, you know, and I'll, I'll see it. Um, and, and you know, we'll, when it, when the schedule permits, we'll make the episode. So here we go with our top eight. Um, you know, I was just talking about star Wars and, and how I, you know, all about the star Wars franchise and everything. Well, I think it makes it only fitting <laughs> to at number eight, put in the movie this has no sequels. Uh, and you absolutely, even though there have been prior content, um, it's not related to that prior content in any way. Um, this is definitely something made completely on its own, um, with its own flavor. So I don't consider it beholden to that franchise rule. Just like, I mean, how many different Dracula movies are there, right? In fact, might get into that, but <laughs> how many different Dracula movies are there? In fact, there's more Dracula movies than there is about any singular character. Now, Dracula is not Star Wars or Terminator or Alien or, you know, anything like that. Like almost, almost minus some of the Hammer films, almost no Dracula movie is related to the other, right? Like you can't say that there's a Dracula franchise. It, it, it doesn't exist. You know, so they, they stand on their own about specific characters, similar to like Robin Hood. Like there's no, there's no real, I mean, there's TV, there have been TV shows, there have been other things, but there's no real Robin Hood franchise, right? There's different movies that have Robin Hood. Uh, a lot of them are very good. 
Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, you know, could easily be in my top eight. But again, that's not really a franchise. So when I tell you that number eight is 1980s Flash Gordon, um, you don't need to know anything about Flash Gordon at all to get this movie. Like you don't have to go back and watch the classic serials to understand um, Flash Gordon. You don't even have to watch the Defenders of the Universe cartoon, which of course came out after this movie, but still awesome. Uh, you don't need to do that to get this movie. Um, this movie stands totally on its own. I wish it didn't. <laughs> like, I actually, this is one where I wish they did make sequels. Um, that did not happen, even though the end credits, it was certainly set up to do so. Um, but there were varying problems on set. Uh, to the point where the lead actor actually walked um, off the set. <laughs> of course, that being Sam Jones. Um, of course, that also ended his career, more or less. But 1980s Flash Gordon, um, of course, made by or, or produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who is behind some of my, a, a pretty large chunk, actually, of my favorite movies ever made, from Conan the Barbarian to... Well, I don't want to list a bunch of them because that might ruin the surprise <laughs> of what movies that might come up later on. Um, but, you know, an Italian film producer who could just, you know, he could just raise money from the grave and whatever he wanted to get made could end up getting made. And the De Laurentiis family is still uh, really, I think, a powerhouse in film, uh, at least in some aspects of the world. But here, here's the thing with the Dino film. I mean, granted, it all it doesn't really come down to Dino. I think it comes down to the, you know, the, the people that he brings on to the set and whatever. Every single Dino De Laurentiis film has such a unique look. And I don't mean unique from each other, though they're that too. I mean, Dino De Laurentiis films, or at least a lot of them, the big, you know, the, the more epic ones. Look unlike anything made before or since there is nothing that looks like Barbarella. Nothing. I mean, uh, that, that movie could have been on this list too. Fuck. I mean, there's so many movies I have to leave off the table here because we're only doing eight, but nothing looks like Barbarella. Nothing looks like Dune from 84. Nothing, not even the new one. Nothing looks that fucking good. Nothing. And I mean, nothing looks like Flash Gordon and that style. This is totally, and I, and I admit this, this is totally a movie of style over substance. But when we do get some substance, you know, it, I, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. And certainly for the time, um, this is an incredibly sexy film. There is no other way to put it. This is a sexy movie. Okay. It is a movie that is just oozing, you know, just dripping with eroticism, you know, uh, even dare I say machismo and outright lust. Um, I mean, I, fuck, <laughs> but what's amazing is, is that it's also just a fun adventure story, which is, and, and at the time, certainly the effects still look good, you know, even though it might not have been, you know, John Dykstra level, right. With, you know, star Wars or Battlestar Galactica or V, um, but they still looked, you know, the, the movie still looks fantastic. And again, there's really nothing that looks quite like it, uh, not before and certainly not since. Max von Sydow as Emperor Ming is top of his game. Absolutely top of his game here. Turns him into, I, I mean, this, for science fiction fans, this movie turns him into a legend. 
You know, yes, he goes on to do Dune. Yes, he goes on to do needful things. There's plenty more that he has done and that he had done in his, you know, storied career. But he was brilliant in this. And I and 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 kudos because I think as the villain, he steals the show away from Sam Jones's Flash Gordon. Like you almost root for Ming more than you root for Flash. Uh, in this movie. And, and that's, that's incredible. Uh, I saw this movie when I was incredibly young, it was like a, a Tuesday night feature on Fox back when Fox, the network, you know, as far as network television, when Fox was very new, right. We're talking like 1987, 1988, you know, when, when they, they really were the new kids on the block. And uh, well, I mean, not that bad, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> Married with children was like the best thing they had. The Simpsons were, it was becoming a thing. But they'd have like these, what they called it, like the Tuesday night ticket on Fox. Um, and like they would play like old Hercules movies, um, they you know, with, with Steve Reeves or Reg Park or even Lou Ferrigno. Um, and, and one night they had Flash Gordon on and we recorded it, you know, on VHS. And man, I watched the shit out of this movie <laughs> I just nonstop. Um, but I've only, my appreciation for this film has only grown over time because over time, because I don't want you to think, oh, he likes this because he's watched it a million times since he was a kid. No, no, no. Now let me tell you why I like this movie. Okay. And that is because since it came out in 1980, 41 years ago, almost there really hasn't been anything else like it. Like there has been the opportunity for something to supersede it. There has been the opportunity, frankly, for a better flash movie. And I, I know it's not public domain, which is why like there aren't as many flash Gordon movies as say there are Robin hood and whatever else, but there's been plenty of opportunity to do it better, to do it with more class, to do it uh, uh sexier, dare I say. And it's never happened. This movie just gets better with age. And it look because I mean, it looks so real and everybody, yeah, it's corny and whatever, but look, you're never going to get queen to do another soundtrack. It can't happen. Why? Because well, we know who's gone, right? This, the, the music in this movie, holy fuck. I mean, queen just, you know, that like that, that's the thing is that, okay. Queen is corny and ridiculous, right? Don't pay too much attention to Freddie's lyrics. Okay. You, you know, I get it, but the reason people still love queen comes from their sincerity comes from the heart that you, that you hear, you know, when Freddie's singing, right? Like if it's sincere enough, you believe it. And that's it. That's, that's the magic. That's the magic of this whole movie because you could say it's corny as fuck. Yeah, but it's fucking sincere. And Dino De Laurentiis took it seriously. You know, <laughs> like, like there's, there's the, the, what, uh, if you get the arrow video recently came out with a, a stunning 4k and blu-ray release um, of this movie. And when you, you listen to like, or when you watch some of the documentaries on that disc, or you listen to the audio commentary uh, from, from the director, which I mean, by the way, like Mike Hodges, nice job. Um, but he tells the story about when he's talking to Dino over dinner about making this movie and coming on as a director. And Dino says to him, says, Mike, you understand flash Gordon saves the fucking world. You know, and that's the way he said it. And, and like, I laugh at it. And then I, I almost cry to have a, 
somebody in fucking Hollywood, granted it was 40 years ago, over 40 years ago now, but to have somebody there that takes the shit seriously. Yeah, it's corny. Yeah, it's over the top. Yeah, it's this. But the sincerity makes it not matter that it's corny. Like just the sincerity of the emotion of what you wanted to appear on the screen of the heroism, the villainy, the sexiness, whatever, all of it. That sincerity is everything. And so when you put all these elements together, no matter how ridiculous it looks, when Max von Sydow, you know, is, is playing Ming, you know, straight lace, right? When you've got, fuck, you know, I mean, it's crazy, right? You're, you're in this, you know, the kingdom of Mongo, right? And, and, and you got a guy like essentially playing football and taking out Clytus's soldiers, you know, uh, but you have Queens music going to it and yeah. All right. You got the, the, you know, Flash Gordon is the quarterback for the New York jets and he's, you know, 41, 40, you know. <laughs> But it, I mean, I got, I have goosebumps right now. Just thinking about that scene. It's one of the best scenes of the movie and you buy it. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. How the hell would you be taking out guys and playing football? You know, but it just works because they took it so seriously. It was so sincere. An amazing, amazing movie. And now when I say that it's better than star Wars, what I mean by that, I should, I should break this down. I mean that it's better than a new hope. It's not better than empire strikes back. It's not better than return of the Jedi. Okay. Um, it's better than all the prequels, but (laughs) okay. But I mean, it's better than a new hope in that. I think it's more original. It's infinitely sexier. Not that a new hope was meaning to be sexy, you know, like clearly it wasn't arguably the exact opposite. Um, but I think it has a better, you know, a better doe-eyed hero <laughs> than, than Luke Skywalker in a new hope. Luke Skywalker becomes one of the best heroes ever in later films, as we've discussed in Sovereign at the Movies. But you get my point here. Um, this is just, again, the movie is so sincere. It goes to so many different fantastical areas. Like, I, I mean, things that are wildly different than, than anything you see in a new hope. And I get it. Like it had a bigger budget, right? I know. But like when you go to, you know, like the Hawkman city, when you go to, you know, Prince Baron's land, ultimately, I feel like Flash Gordon made a much bigger world than A New Hope did. Now, Star Wars would get bigger as you get into later movies, and then suddenly we'd have the Star Wars universe. But with A New Hope and comparing just A New Hope and Flash Gordon, okay, uh, Flash Gordon takes the cake in, in by, in my opinion, by every single metric. Um, and of course it's funny that I say that considering that George Lucas originally star Wars was supposed to be a flash Gordon movie. Well, it's just as well that he didn't make the flash Gordon movie. And I'm glad because now it's kind of like when, you know, your favorite lead singer goes and does, you know, a solo band and the original lineup, uh, you know, continues to make music. You essentially get, you know, like double the greatness, right? So we don't just, we don't have to think about, or worry or wonder, boy, wouldn't it have been amazing if George Lucas made a Flash Gordon movie? No, we get Star Wars and we get Flash Gordon. And Flash Gordon is fucking brilliant. Again, it was set up to, um, you know, to have sequels. Uh, the It didn't perform as well in the box office in America as I think they were hoping. In Europe, this movie's fucking huge. You know, gets talked about. It's kind of like what happened. So, like in France, okay, today it's probably, and, and I, when I say today, I mean ever since Disney took over, it's probably different. But pre-Disney, Battlestar Galactica was bigger than Star Wars 
in France because it was, I mean, for many reasons, but one of them is that it was Battlestar Galactica. And I mean, the 78 Galactica, the real one Battlestar Galactica was considered the more original property because the French feel like George Lucas just copied Valerian, which he did in, in a lot of ways. So I want to move on to other movies, but you know, the magic in flash Gordon, I mean, it didn't take itself seriously. Okay. But it did take itself sincerely. And I think that's the, that's the key here, right? Is that you were, you were allowed to have a lot of fun in the movie, just have like a wild and crazy time in the film. Okay. No one was pretending that it was high drama or anything along those lines and a movie to be great doesn't need to be, but it did take itself sincerely. It treated everything sincerely. You know, here's the hero, here's the villain. And you, you got to like help build up, um, you know, a villain, like you actually have a great villain in the movie, which I think is key and why most modern films, uh, you know, are, are flaming dog piles because they, you know, they, they don't have villains in them. They just have obstacles. And where's the fun in that? So 1980 Flash Gordon, we'll give that at number eight, moving right along to number seven and number seven, another science fiction movie, uh, though maybe you'd want to call Flash Gordon science fantasy or space opera or something like that, whatever. Um, okay. You know, you, you title it what you want, but this movie is firmly grounded science fiction. And I would argue that, and, and one of the reasons, again, I'm not really doing, not until we get to three, two, and one, you know, does the order really matter? But the reason this isn't at number eight, it's above Flash Gordon, comes down to that it is the ultimate science fiction movie. And I say that, not that it like has everything in it that you would expect from a science fiction epic or a great science fiction film, but that it started everything. Like it got the ball rolling on all visual science fiction uh, going forward. I mean, there were other science fiction movies before it, no doubt about that. But 1956's Forbidden Planet is, you know, it's it's the archetype, right? Or, or call it the prototype if you want. In my opinion, there would be no Star Wars. There would be no Star Trek or at least Star Trek would be an incredibly different animal that certainly wouldn't have taken off the way that it did. Um, pick, pick your franchise. They would not have existed without Forbidden Planet, which is ironic that it it itself doesn't really have a franchise other than maybe some like rare comic books uh, that might have gone into, uh, you know, into some interesting territory with the, well, particularly like the Krell, which is the, the alien species. Um, on the planet. So, I mean, the whole movie is all about, you know, this crew of the United Planet Starship C-57D. Boy, doesn't all that sound very familiar. Um, going to the planet Altair 4, and which even that sounds kind of familiar, like Altair 6. Hmm, wonder where that's from. Anyway, <laughs> going to check on a Dr. Morbius um, on the planet. And when they land, you know, all, all manner of mysterious things start to occur. Um, it's very much a thriller. And I can imagine in 1956 that some of the elements of this were absolutely terrifying. Uh, there is the monster that no one can see, but of course the amazing effect when the monster is going up the steps of the C 57 D and you see 
the foot indentation, but you can't see the monster. I mean, that had to be, you know, like scary as fuck back then. Um, I mean, you can say that there were science fiction movies beforehand, you know, that, that, that made a real like impact, like say the day the earth stood still and so on. And certainly those could be in this top eight as well. Um, but this is the one again that I really feel like set the standard, like, okay, this is how we go through space. This is how we travel. Um, this is how we organize in space. This is, I mean, it's got it all. Even the grand mystery of like ancient species that we would find on another planet with these gigantic machines and also, I mean, you know, but that have long gone and, and just parlaying this idea that the universe has been around for so long. There have been civilizations that have come and gone that, you know, we can barely imagine how, you know, the, the technological achievements, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that they, the technological heights that they reached. So it's a film that set up a lot of the quasi military stylings that, you know, a lot of science fiction and space travel and science fiction would follow. Um, but then also it set up, you know, like what could be out there, you know, and what it's like to be out there, really like to be out there, uh, you know, and so on. And then, you know, Robbie, the robot, of course, is, I mean, a, a film icon and a science fiction icon. Uh, but the importance of Robbie, the robot really can't be understated either because this is one of the first times that a robot, and of course, Robbie the robot would go on to, you know, be in many other uh, productions. Not again, Forbidden Planet didn't have any, didn't have any sequels. We'll talk about that. Uh, but Robbie the robot made a robot finally seem like something that just, you know, wasn't just some tin can with legs. Right? This is something that had had some some personality that the function, everything about it just kind of seemed to make sense, you know? And yeah, Robbie, the robot real, I mean, putting him it on the, you know, the, the, the poster, um, I think was a stroke of genius because he definitely steals the show. Not to say that the actors in any way are subpar because they're not, I mean, you have thankfully Leslie Nielsen in a serious role. I love his comedy. Don't mistake me, but it's good to have him in a serious role. And I mean, he delivers on this. Every actor is, you know, like Anne, Anne Francis, she's phenomenal in this, uh, uh, you know, Walter Pigeon. I mean, like they, everybody's delivering, everybody's firing on all cylinders with this, the music in the movie, you know, we were talking about how amazing the queen soundtrack was for flash Gordon. And it absolutely is. Um, you know, the music for this by, by, uh, you know, by Louis Barron, um, it was, I think it's technically the first electronic soundtrack ever and it's haunting, you know, and it, it works and it, it sounds futuristic. Like even to this day, certainly at the time it had to be like something, you know, no one had ever really heard before. Uh, so, you know, it, it works on that level because again, this movie just broke a ton of new ground, but it was telling such a compelling mysterious story as well. It's a perfect 10. Obviously every movie on this list is a perfect 10, but this is, this is a perfect 10. This is the, again, the archetype for all science fiction films, at least going forward, you know, from, from 56 on, uh, and you can see after you watch it, if you've never watched it, you can see where everybody's been copying it, you know, for the past, you know, to this day, really. So for the past 60 years or even 70 or going on 70 anyway, which is really hard to believe. 
Now this is one where I really do wish we had sequels. Um, there have been multiple conversations over the past 30 years. And I, I know of some of them uh, that didn't go any further, thankfully. Um, where th- there were talks of doing a remake. Uh, I'm a little bothered. This is made by MGM. I'm a little worried that Amazon may decide to do a remake of Forbidden Planet. Uh, this is not a movie that ever needs to be remade. Again, it, it invented, <laughs> you know, most of the, the, dare I say, science fiction tropes that we have today in film anyway, and in, in, you know, in TV shows, just continue the story, you know, and don't do a prequel. Don't do a prequel. Continue the story. I don't know. Have some, I mean, if you want to bring the Krell in, have them be from like a, a another planet. I, I don't know. You, to, however you want to do it. Don't do a prequel. Continue the story. Let's have more of the United Planets. And I, I th- doing a continuation, I think would be brilliant on Amazon's part because this would give them their, a chance to do Star Trek without doing Star Trek, right? Because Star Trek copied Forbidden Planet, you know, six ways a Sunday. And so you could, you really could mimic and, and get into Star Trek styled stories, you know, with, it doesn't have to be the crew of the C-57D, but something similar. And, and you could, you could get into that you could make it, you could make Star Trek like you always wanted. And we know how much Bezos loves fucking Star Trek. Um, yeah, I, I think it'd be a no brainer for them, for them to go forward with this, but don't remake it. Don't remake it. Do what Disney did with Star Wars. Treat what came in the past with a degree of reverence. Okay. And then, you know, build off of that. Just do, do it better than Disney's done with the sequel trilogy. That's all. So number seven goes to Forbidden Planet from 1956. Um, let's go to number six. Number six, we are going way back in time. <laughs> number six is another one of those movies that I've watched constantly. Uh, it's, it's a lot newer than, or fairly newer than the films that I've already discussed thus far. This one is from 1995 and it is the Sean Connery. And well, I guess really there's three main actors here, but you have Sean Connery. You have, of course, Richard Gere, the immortal Richard Gere. I don't know. I haven't seen him in a few years. Maybe he's not so immortal anymore. Uh, but the immortal Richard Gere and Julia Armand, um, Ben Cross does a great job in this as well. You know, I don't want to leave anybody out on this. Really, everybody is is delivering um, with the acting on this one. Jerry Zucker, uh, you know, doing the directing here. And a real star of the show is the music once again, this time being done by the greatest of all time. No, not John Williams. Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Man. <laughs> What can't you say about the guy? <laughs> just, just the legend, uh, a guy who reinvented his career multiple times over and was so versatile. I mean, he, you know, he puts the genius and musical genius. He, he really, really does or did, I should say. But here we have with first night, um, we have a King Arthur story, a character that's in the public domain. Um, because he existed before there was even IP. <laughs> so, uh, but a character uh, that that's in the public domain. So a lot of movies get made about King Arthur. You know, a lot of stories get told. Um, this is one that does not really follow any of the legends that we know of. 
Um, but it works in its own right. Um, it's display of the world of Camelot is not, you know, there's no sword in the stone here. There, there's no real Excalibur, you know, there's nothing mystical at all in this. I mean, there's, you know, no green Knight, nothing like that. Um, no, you know, Excalibur again, uh, you know, there no sword in the stone, no Merlin even actually there's no Merlin in this movie, but what it delivers is in my opinion, a fantastic romance, but the world of Camelot that it wanted to get to this, the world of Camelot that it puts on display, the way the design, the armor of, you know, the Knights and, and everything. In my opinion, it's, it's the best King Arthur has ever looked and or Camelot has ever looked really. Uh, not to say Sean Connery isn't, you know, the sexiest uh, King Arthur ever. I, I wouldn't argue too much against that. Uh, but it, it, yeah, the, the look of this movie is phenomenal. The music is phenomenal. I mean, these actors are the best in the world, certainly in the 90s. Um, you've got everything in this movie. And it's, you know, it's funny, though. I say all that. It's still a very humble film. But it's one of those movies where, and, and this is really the first movie in this, in this top eight that I can say this for. It's one of those movies that has an incredible amount of memorable lines. And, you know, I, I, I used to crack a joke with, uh, uh, with friends of mine and, and actually with, with, with a dear friend who's, who's no longer here as well. Um, celebrating a, well, not celebrating, but honoring a few years since he's passed uh, now. But, um, and he was the number one sovereign tech fan in the world. Uh, but we, we, we talk about how, you know, like we didn't speak English. We spoke movie quotes <laughs> like that, that. That was our language. And this is one of those movies that, man, you, you can, I mean, there are so many great quotes, uh, in this film from Sean Connery alone to say, you know, no one else in it. Uh, you walk away with a lot of, you know, a, a lot of things to think about, um, in this movie, even though, you know, in a way it's. You could call it almost a simple love story, but even then it's not that there there's a love triangle to be sure, which, you know, in that sense, it, it takes from the King Arthur legend, you know, where Lancelot, uh, uh, you know, wants to be with the queen, right? The lady Guinevere. Um, and I, I, I love, I mean, Julie Armand, like really, really worked here, like her ability to humble Hollywood's leading men, as it were, you, you think, for example, was it, was it Sabrina with, um, with Harrison Ford? I mean, you know, we're talking about Harrison Ford here who can, you know, who can bring him to his knees? Well, Julie Armand can, uh, certainly she does that with Richard Gere, who at the time was considered the sexiest man alive as was, uh, I think people magazine just a couple of years previous had voted that Sean Connery was like the sexiest man alive, you know, and he was over 60. Um, so she got to play, you know, with, uh, uh, if we were to use conventional terms, she, she got to act against a couple of alphas here and, uh, <laughs> she, it worked, you know, and, and, and you totally got where she was torn between these, you know, between Lancelot and Arthur. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal film. It's a very romantic. I, I really, I like the, the scene when Lancelot is taking Guinevere you know, and, and, and like rescues her. And, but then is like, they're, they're getting her to, uh, you know, to Camelot and has her like drink from the leaf while it's raining. Oh man. I mean, just what a romantic movie. I, 
I, I love it. I, I, I've watched this movie so many fucking times. This is one of those like, I don't know, like comfort food movies, right? <laughs> Where you, you know, if you just want to feel better, you pop in this movie and, and it's one of those, not to say it doesn't have uh, sadness and it. it has plenty of it. Um, but Sean Connery, just like the heart, heart wrench, you know, the heartbreak, or I should say the heartbreaking that he feels in the movie, all of it works. Um, and the action's pretty good. Uh, like, like, I mean the, you know, the battles between the knights and everything like really, really work on this. Um, King Arthur is clearly one of the, you know, most important characters in, if I were to, to use another conventional term in Western history, uh, a type of Christ, if, if I could go so far. And this is, in my opinion, the character's best presentation. It's not the most historically accurate, but I mean, even when you, you know, if you're someone who's into um, you know, studying the, the, the history of King Arthur, uh, you, you realize there's a lot of different stories and that there isn't just one story. So you can play off a lot of a different thing, a lot of different things here. This definitely blazed its own trail, but in doing so, uh, I think it just gave a tremendous representation and one that again, relied on no mysticism. Not that I have a problem with the mysticism or any supernatural aspects to the story, but it's brilliant that it could be so powerful and impactful without it. Uh, and it just comes down to a very human tale. And I think that's almost a better lineage for the character than, you know, the character of King Arthur than anything else. Um, and you, I mean, you got a nice ending for or a, a kind of a nice ending, I think for Lancelot as well. And, but really for me, the beauty of this film, again, the music is there, but like just the look, the cinematography, the design unparalleled. Uh, I, I mean, it's just gorgeous. So there we go. Uh, first night at number six. Um, let's go to number five. Number five, we're, we're, we're going to fast forward a few years. Uh, <laughs> actually I, I do, here's one that was, this is up, up to debate. And when I mean a few years, I don't mean when the movie got made. I mean, as in when the movie takes place, um, this, this was, this is a tough one for a couple of reasons. One is this is unseating a film that was previously like in this number in my top five, because before you look, the reason I do top eights is because top 10, top three, whatever, the numbers are fucking meaningless. Okay. They do it kind of on, per, or they're not meaningless. They do it because the number three, you know, they're, they're like, like that creates a certain, um, a cultural meme association, the number 10 does the same thing. Um, so I just went with the top eight just to like break away from the listicle nonsense. Okay. Because no one else does a top eight. So I'm like, well, then I'll do a top eight because I'm not here to like, because the idea is like, why do websites and even podcasts and you know, other forms of media, why do they do top threes and top tens? It's all a trick, right? It's a mental trick to get you to look at it because there's just some, there's something in, in the brain that makes you want to look at a top 10, you know, whether it's kind of, I don't know if it's because you're counting your fingers or what, but so I did a top eight because I don't, I'm not playing a mental game with you. I am just giving you what I consider the best of the best at any time that I do a top eight. But before it was a top eight, you know, in my own mind, before I had a podcast, I would, in my own mind, I had top fives. Okay. Like what are the five best, you know? And what was number five and is no longer even on this list was free enterprise made by, um, Mark Altman and Robert Meyer Burnett. Um, this is a movie my, my, the reason I used to say this is one of my favorite movies was because 
I would say the only thing that could be better than a science fiction movie is a movie about science fiction movies. And that's essentially what free enterprise was is a movie that was all about science fiction fans and them going through life and kind of, so, and it was kind of a romantic comedy, which I, I, I can dig. And, uh, I still love that movie. I'll still watch it endlessly. The thing is, I have to admit that free enterprise today doesn't carry the same meaning that it did when it was originally made, you know, and was being made, you know, shared around the, uh, uh, the convention circuit back in the, you know, early aughts and so on. Cause you see back then, like in the, in the, like the late nineties, you know, and even before then being a science fiction fan, you were part of a subculture. That subculture really no longer exists. Now everybody's basically a science fiction fan, you know, and you only need to see how much money, you know, varying uh, science fiction properties or superhero properties or whatever makes today to realize that, that just, it's just like video games. Everybody's a gamer now, everybody. Okay. Whether they're playing candy crush or whatever, you're probably just about everybody you talk to, even grandma is probably playing a video game. So these subcultures don't really have any meaning anymore. So like a movie like free enterprise was a standard bearer was a film that you could kind of rally behind because it was the movie that represented you. Now that movie still represents me, you know, and, and that kind of a fan from that time who can like quote everything that speaks in movie quotes that, you know, like just watch it to get it. Okay. Believe me, you'll get it instantly. But also that time is, I mean, it's not just long past like now <laughs> it's almost to the point. You don't, you almost don't want to identify as a science fiction fan because then you're just being bundled in with everybody, you know, when no, no, like I'm really into this stuff, you know, and, and like there's meaning to derive from this stuff and there's, you know, all this other crap. It's not just about entertainment and, you know, I don't know what to call that. I don't know what that would be today. Um, I guess in, in simple terms, what I, what I'm saying is, is that Comic-Con should never sell out. There shouldn't, there shouldn't be thousands of people at Comic-Con should be, I don't know, a couple hundred, maybe (laughs) it just, it's, it, it's all lost its way. And so free enterprise, because of that, I still love the movie. I still watch it, but it doesn't carry the same importance and meaning um, today that it had 20 years ago. So now the real debate in what takes my number five spot actually comes down to, <laughs> well, I mentioned earlier that we talked more about Dracula. The question became which Dracula was it the 1979 Dracula with Frank Langella, or is it the 1992 Dracula? Of course, with uh, made by Francis Ford Coppola, uh, with Gary Oldman in the title role, but being joined by, I mean, just an unbelievable cast. Um, you know, everybody from Billy Campbell to Anthony Hopkins and probably his best role next to Mask of Zorro. Um, you know, I mean, who else? Winona Ryder, of course, Keanu Reeves. I mean, <laughs> talk about a star-studded fucking movie. Um, and as much as I love the 79 Dracula, um, I mean, and just a Wow. Just an incredible film, especially the soundtrack done by John Williams. Unbelievable. Um, it does get beat out and edged out by the 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, that's like the official full title. 
Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula from 92 is an oddball film in that it's made like a Dracula film from the 1930s or 40s, as in Coppola particularly wanted it to be made uh, using traditional techniques. No, you know, no, no CGI, no blue screen. They were going to do everything the old fashioned special effects way, just like it would be done, say, in Bela Lugosi's day. Um, and it's it's a special film for that alone. But it does that exceptionally well. I mean, even the effects when, you know, Harker's on the uh, on the train and you see like Dracula's eyes in the background and everything um, like all of that was totally practical effects, not even blue screen. But that's that's more of just what makes the movie unique. What makes it great? What makes it one of the top eight? Well, that comes down to a few different elements. Um, one, I mean, again, the, the, the cast is phenomenal. The director is Coppola. <laughs> All right. And Coppola really made this because a lot of his, you know, more artsy films that he was doing throughout the eighties, none of them were really making money. And so he said, okay, I'm going to make a movie that makes some money. And boy, did this movie make some money? Uh, he was going to make something, you know, that could appeal to a larger audience. Um, and I think he delivers on this with something that is funny terrifying a bit at times, you know, just imagine licking the, uh, the razor, right. You know, the, uh, you know, that, that score. Um, certainly when I was a very young person, uh, I thought this movie was hot as hell. I mean, you know, like I, again, as a young person, I was, I mean, just, there was nothing else like this available <laughs> on VHS, or at least that wasn't in the back room of, uh, you know, a video to roll, you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> or a blockbuster, uh, not that the blockbuster, I don't think they ever really had the back room, but you know what I mean? Okay. Uh, so, so it, that it definitely left an impression on me. And I mean, like it's to this day, I'm amazed that they got that scene in where Dracula as, you know, kind of the werewolf, uh, you know, is rocking it with Lucy you know, in, in, in the courtyard there. Like I, I still can't believe that got done on screen in 1992, but even, I mean, that that's part of it. So, you know, there, there's certainly the, you know, the, the, the sexiness of the film overall that one, I mean, depending upon how you look at it, because on the other end, like it works on multiple levels because there's people who could be very much into all of that. And then there's people who see that as Holy shit, that's terrible and terrifying. Right. So there's a lot of different aspects to go with this, but what really blew my mind with this one, is that probably next to a movie that used to sit on my top eight, which was the devil's advocate next to the devil's advocate. I can't think of a more, <laughs> I mean, right from the opening, right? When Gary Oldman, you know, is Dracula or Vlad Dracul returns from the crusades and finds out that his, you know, his lover, she, you know, took her own life. Right. And then he just gets into that whole spiel of, you know, damning God and, and like stabbing the, the stone cross in the chapel, drinking the blood from it and everything. I mean, that scene, I still love that scene so much. <laughs> it's so great. I mean, next, next to like Al Pacino's speech at the end of, uh, you know, at the end of devil's advocate where, you know, look, but don't touch, touch, but don't taste You know, <laughs> next to that. Uh, just one of the most wonderfully sacrilegious scenes ever put on film. And, oh man, <laughs> you know, and especially, I mean, it's impressive to not be in English too. That might be how they kind of got away with it. 
because maybe somehow the studio just like was snoring <laughs> even even that early on in the film. I don't know. Uh, I mean, Coppola could in many ways write his own check still, you know, at, at that point. Um, but man, that, that, that was intense, you know, when when, when that happens. Uh, but the, I mean, this this movie's a, a perfect 10. Great moments. Um, not necessarily, you know, if I was also to compare it to, say, Devil's Advocate, not as quotable as Devil's Advocate, but, uh, you know, there's still a lot to, to, to really to pull away from the film. Um, but it, it's just it's a masterpiece. Uh, this is how films can be done. Uh, and, and the pacing, everything, the music, holy shit. I, I can't even, I can never pronounce this guy's name. It's like watch killar or something like that. That music has been used in so many movies after the fact. In fact, it's impressive enough for, uh, for, you know, killar to, to actually best John Williams score from 79, which that that's amazing in and of itself. And part of what edges it out over the 1979 Dracula. Um, yeah, just, just a, just an amazing film. And Anthony Hopkins is so funny in this. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this movie, you know, part of what puts it in the top five, even if we were to go there, part of what puts it in the top five is that it is one of the rare films that truly runs the gamut of the human experience. You know, like every emotion you can think of is in this film. Uh, and that that's part of what also gives it a perfect 10. I fuck, I'd give it an 11, you know, if that, if that scale were there and it really is, it, you know, it's just one of those films where the more you watch it, the more there is to see. Uh, yeah, I mean, one could argue, okay, Keanu Reeves acting is, eh, but, <laughs> but I think he does fine, you know, for what it is, you know, yeah, they wanted the young, sexy cast on there. I, I understand all these things. Um, but I really like I I think he did great. And and a part of me would not feel well uh, <laughs> without a Keanu Reeves film uh, in my top eight. You know, before it was Devil's Advocate or it was The Matrix. Um, you got to have Keanu in there. You know, the guy, the guy's just the guy's just so cool and nuts. Anyway, <laughs> well, let's move on to our next film. And our next film, you know, it's one of those where it's number four here. But in many ways, it could be like number zero um, as much as Forbidden Planet and not uninterestingly, uh, this did come out after Forbidden Planet. So I can't exactly, you know, the statement isn't 100 percent true. But this movie from 1959 comes in at number four again, it could be number zero. Um, it's another movie like I was saying about Forbidden Planet, where you could argue really every movie ever since has been trying to be this film. It is, I like to think of it really as the blockbuster before star Wars. Like, you know, there's the, the argument that, that a new hope, you know, that star Wars in 77 was the start of the blockbuster. Um, I think this movie from 59 is, I mean, and one could say, well, no, actually gone with the wind was the first blockbuster. Yeah. I, I hear that. Um, but I think this movie really takes the cake. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's an epic you know, toss that word around as much as you want, but you're not going to find anybody that disagrees. And I think even like young people today would watch this movie and just see the scale of it and go, holy fuck. Yeah. That and they might even say, fuck, you know, holy fuck. Yeah. That's epic. And we are talking about none other than Ben Hur. Uh, ben Hur, of course, a remake of a movie that came out. Boy, when did that come out? Like the twenties or the thirties uh, when the previous film came out. Um, and it itself, of course, being based off of 
a novel, a fictional novelization. Yeah, it was like 25. I think it was 1925 when the silent film uh, Ben-Hur came out. Um, but of course, based on Lou Wallace's uh, book from the 19th century, uh, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, that would be more or less the full title um, of this film. And it's a weird movie for me for a lot of reasons. I've been watching it since I was a kid. Uh, it was really cool to watch this movie and have a blatantly Jewish hero. So for me, you know, as a little Jewish boy in New York, um, you know, you get to see a movie like this and you see Chuck Heston, you know, Planet of the Apes, the whole thing, you know, have Chuck Heston playing, you know, this, this lead character of Judah Ben-Hur. And I mean, that's awesome in itself, right? You know, <laughs> it's like fine when you find out that uh doom guy, you know, might be the, like the great, 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 great grandson of, uh, of the character, you know, the, the arguably Jewish character from Wolfenstein, right? It's like finding that out, you know, and, and, and sort of feeling that connection. So I always thought it was really cool. I mean, and to this day, I, st you know, one thing that hasn't changed, well, some of the movies in this list in my top eight, uh, may have shifted or changed or changed entirely. Um, my opinion that Chuck Heston is the greatest actor of all time has not changed. I can't really picture that changing because if William Shatner can't even unseat him, who the hell can? And, you know, look, before anybody gives shit about Chuck Heston's acting ability, watch this movie. I mean, even just like there's scenes, especially early on in the film where, which overall is really kind of like next to the chariot race, which of course everybody remembers in many ways, my, my favorite part of the movie is very early on, like when Masala and Judah are hanging out and, you know, like things are still good. Like everything hasn't, the shit hasn't hit the fan yet in the movie. But some of the, like just the look that Chuck Heston would give to, uh, to Esther, you know, I mean, just that look of like, <laughs> yeah, baby, you know, <laughs> whatever, that's the best way I could put it. Uh, Man, I, you know, <laughs> like it, it, I mean, that's it for me. Great acting. A lot of times doesn't come down to how you say things. It's what can you deliver? You know, we've talked about this in sovereign tech over the years that, you know, mo communication is only 10% verbal. The rest of communication there's, you know, the other 90% of communication is a lot of body language. Look, you know, all that. And Heston's ability to deliver on that other 90% of communication is phenomenal. And for me, just about any actor, maybe that's why I don't have such an issue with Keanu Reeves, like always kind of sounding like Keanu Reeves, you know, like you're just, no matter where he is, when he is, you're always expecting him to just say, Whoa. Right. But Keanu Reeves can do a lot with that other 90% of communication. Chuck Heston can as well. The great actors are great because they do a lot with that other 90%. Right. Harrison Ford. Think of what he does without saying a word. Uh, phenomenal. So Chuck Heston's there. And then, you know, he's playing off of Stephen Boyd here as Masala, you know, and, and, and the, like the, the kinship that they express early on in that film. Man, do I. Mm. <laughs> it's just something that I always see that I that 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 I always aspire to have, you know, with a friend. And it's beautiful. You know, and, and, but the whole story, everything about it. And, you know, even though sure, like I, I grew up as, as a Jewish boy and like, this is a movie where it's quote unquote, a tale of the Christ. Um, I give them a lot of credit for never showing Jesus's face in this 
and being very sparing with the use of the character of Jesus because it makes it a very powerful figure. You know, it makes, and, and, and it, it just, it gives you chills when you see him look, you know, despite any feelings I could have around Christianity, uh, positive or negative. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know, just despite any of that, you know, great storytelling and great directing is, is great directing and great storytelling. There, there's, you know, doesn't matter what it's about. And William Wally or Weiler, uh, Oof, man, did he do it? I, I thought that was a genius choice. Uh, you know, the latter part of this film, I don't think is as strong as everything that goes on through the film, but this is a movie that takes place over years covers, you know, in many ways, multiple lives. I mean, not in reality, but you know, multiple lives, multiple life situations for the, you know, for the titular character. Uh, and, and it's, it's just so grand in scope. It's, it's amazing. Uh, the ending is probably, if there's a weak point to the movie, that's probably the weak point, but everything else about it is so strong. It just, it, it's like listening to, I don't know, say the greatest, I don't know, whatever you think the greatest album ever made is. There's a good bet, even on that greatest album, that there's one or two songs that might not be, you know, up to snuff, right? And often enough, you know, this as well as I do a band or musician We'll put those weaker songs, you know, towards the end of the album. Right. And so I kind of feel like that that's what they did here is they put some of the weaker content of the story at the end. Um, I mean, when most people talk about Ben-Hur, they rarely talk about the ending, you know, which covers the crucifixion and so on. Um, and I think that's because, yeah, I mean, everything else before then is just so fucking amazing. Uh, I don't know. They, they, they could have, they could have left that part off, but I don't think that it takes away overall from just the power of this film. So I put it at number four. Uh, it is the grandest of epics. And now that puts us into, um, you know, our, our, our top three, um, everything in this top three, you know, though, again, is not, does not match the cinematography, uh, of, you know, of Ben-Hur, um, Miklos Rosa's score for Ben-Hur is almost unmatched in, in soundtracks. If, if we were doing a top eight of like movie soundtracks, Miklos Rosa would have to be there. Uh, you know, with, with Ben Hur, I mean, it's, it's such, such a grand, I mean, and there's, there's so many different themes going on. Um, I mean, I think like Alex Norris work with Cleopatra, uh, would best Ben Hur's score. Uh, but there's just not much, especially from that era that beats what Miklos Rosa was doing. Uh, just a, just a genius. But let's get into the top three, shall we? So this is where it counts. This is where number three is number three. <laughs> number two is number two. And I don't mean shit, quite the opposite. And number one is number one. Number three is a movie that for a very long time was number one. And in fact, ever since I've had the rule of like no franchise films, ever since I've had that rule, uh, this was, this was the first movie that I put at number one. So if you caught me in, you know, say like 1994 or 1995, and you asked me what the greatest movie ever was, this is what I would tell you. And it's an irony that I would tell you this because when I was, if you came to me, say in 1984 or 1985, or, you know, as a really young person, 
I would not have said that. I would have said quite the opposite because I thought this movie was fucking terrifying when I was a little, little kid, even though I wore a t-shirt from it. Um, I, I think I even still have a picture of me wearing it. It was a red t-shirt, had a giant sandworm on it. And you know, once I said giant sandworm, we are talking about none other than the Mandalorian. Wait, yeah, there was a sandworm in that <laughs> or a crayon dragon or whatever. Anyway, no, uh, we are talking about Dune from 1984. Uh, of course, the infamous movie directed by David Lynch, depending upon which version you happen to watch, because David Lynch would also step back uh, from it. And, you know, allow for the Alan Smithy version, which ended up chalking up closer to three hours in length. Uh, you know, that, that, and that movie would make the rounds on the sci-fi channel a lot. When this movie became my favorite was when the Alan Smithy version came out. Like the Alan Smithy version is what brought me over to recognizing the brilliance of this movie. Um, it also, at the same time that it was my favorite movie, it also happened to be my favorite book. Um, I don't know that I, I, that it has been unseated as my favorite fictional novel, um, in recent years by none other than Olaf Stapledon's Star Maker, thanks to Mrs. Sovereign. And I don't think it uninteresting that the Alan Smithy version, or what a lot of people would call the four hour version, because when you played it on television, cable or otherwise, uh, you know, with commercials, it would go four hours, right? Um, the four hour version removed a lot of the really like more grotesque, shall we say uh, more graphic shit out of the movie that David Lynch, you know, with his signature would have um, in the theatrical version of the film. Uh, but, you know, over the years I would actually, you know, the one I would watch more would actually be the theatrical version of the film because I felt like, once you saw the, the Alan Smithy version, you don't have to watch the movie for that long to get the high notes, to get the beauty of the movie. Okay. In fact, there are certain things removed from the Alan Smithy version that I find disappointing that they're not there, but that are in the theatrical version. Um, but the theatrical version, I consider almost like the fast food version, right? It's almost an, an edit, a faster edit that you get to like consume quicker, you know, and, and still get, hopefully get the nutrients, even though with fast food, I guess, you don't. You'll never get the nutrients, but that said, a lot of the grotesque stuff I didn't see as, you know, nutritious <laughs> and outright terrified me. Uh, like the Baron really, really scared me as a kid. Um, but a lot of the, like, you know, eating the heart out and pulling the heart plug and having all the shit dripping on them and, and whatever, like that wasn't in really the four hour version or in the Alan Smithy version. So I think that the Alan Smithy version made it a lot more palatable to me because I was still, you know, a fairly young person uh, when I got into this. And obviously none of that's in the novel. And I fell absolutely fell in love with the novel. Um, so, you know, like it, it made it made the again, that the Alan Smithy version really made the whole thing very palatable to me. But then later on, I would come to appreciate what the theatrical version, you know, put on display. Um, of course, there are other versions of this movie. There's the complete Dune. There's uh, the Spice Driver V3 edition of Dune um, that try to include all the different, uh, you know, I mean, because there's lots and lots of scenes and, you know, uh, deleted scenes that can get reinserted. And then the movie actually does end up chalking up to almost four hours without commercials. But this is another film made by Dino De Laurentiis and where and it just has that style that there's been nothing like it before or really since. Um, 
it is a movie not very, not terribly true to the source material, even though Frank Herbert was on set to some degree, involved with the production to some degree. Uh, so I think that gives it a, a lot of credence in comparison to other uh, versions of Dune that have been made over the years. But, it, you know, it also holds an importance for me. Um, I mean, the movie's just cool, right? It, it just has that total cool factor, has those great moments. And when you're a young person, you know, <laughs> like you kind of see, I mean, Frank Herbert, of course, in the novels would take Paul Atreides on a different trajectory than you probably imagined if you just read the first book, right? You know, this messianic figure ends up going the way of, well, the, the way that messianic figures go, which is if they don't die, they go downhill, right? And well, they, he does end up dying <laughs> and, and then you end up running into all other kinds of problems uh, due to the, not that, not that Paul himself necessarily became the villain, but the carriers of the ramifications of his actions, you could argue, you know, fuck things up. Right. And that happens with most cults of personality, but Paul's story in Dune is one that, you know, I think a lot of young people would be like, Oh yeah, you know, let, let's go that direction. Let's, you know, I want to be like Paul Atreides and you know, I mean, it, it works on that level. I really wonder how things would have went if this movie was a wild success and they did end up making at least a couple more movies uh, because there was, there were plans for sequels of a kind. Uh, and, but I, I get the sense that just like I was for a huge chunk of my life, I was so pissed off at the events that happened in Dune Messiah. Um, I get the sense I, I would have felt that way too, because I mean, Dune picks back up, you know, when you get to heretics in chapter house, right? Even though, I mean, God Emperor is a great book. Children of Dune is a great book. I'm not saying that they're not. Um, but things get really interesting when you get to Heretics and Chapter House. And the sad part is that those two books, which I feel like carry a lot of the ultimate messages of what Frank Herbert was trying to get out there, will probably never get made. Or at least I, I can't imagine it. Um, because it also gets just way too weird, I think, for people. You can tell the story of Dune and it's, and I think for most, like it, it's not necessarily too weird, right? Uh, I mean, it has its moments, sure, but I don't know that we're ever going to get like movies that, that go that distance because most people's heads just, frankly, they'd explode, <laughs> you know, after, once you get to like Leto the second growing up, you know, but even with that said, I mean, part of my attraction to Dune, to the movie Dune you know, again, there was that cool factor. There was, there was that, that even then there was nothing else like it. Um, and I remember talking to Harlan Ellison about this and Harlan would make it very clear about the movie Dune that, and he loved this movie. Harlan absolutely loved the 1984 Dune. And you know how, if you know anything about Harlan Ellison, he was the harshest critic you could imagine. So for it to please him, <laughs> you know, is, 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 a grander feat than an Academy Award, even though the Academy Award isn't a grand feat. But it's amazing that he was able to, you know, it's amazing that it was able to impress him in such a way. And his opinion of this movie always was, and I share it with him now, is that it's the impossible film. Like, it should have never been able to get made. It should have never even been greenlit, you know, like, like, because Dune is such a, so, so out there. 
that a, who the hell would agree to make this? I mean, we're just fortunate that star, everybody was trying to copy star Wars success. And since the studios didn't understand science fiction, they just grabbed whatever big properties they could. And everybody probably heard, Oh, there's this Dune thing. That's supposed to be a, a big deal for science fiction fans. Let's make that. Um, so it should have never, it should have never been shot. should have never been made. Uh, but it did get made. It should have. And so it should have never even gotten to production. And then the production should have been fucking impossible, but somehow it did come together. And I would argue it came together in a fairly coherent way. Um, I mean, it helps if you have read the book and so on. Uh, but it really did, especially when you get to the Alan Smithy version with like that 20 minute intro with all the concept art and everything talking about Chome and, you know, all these different aspects of it. I mean, then you can really understand what's going on in the universe very quickly. Um, I do think that that kind of explanatory introduction is a lost art. We need that, that again in movies because it's what has allowed us in the past, even, even the Virginia Madsen version, the princess Irulan version from the theatrical version would be, you know, those kind of opening introductions, even if it's just text is what would allow us to get to the fucking point instead of having to do origin stories all the time. And that really is a lost art. Dune does it well. The 84 Dune does it well, both with Princess Irulan and with the, the, the concept art version that, um, you know, that, that would be in the Alan Smithy version. This movie also, like I was saying earlier, is one that is incredibly quotable. Um, Toto, of course, easily one of the best bands in history. Uh, and, and yes, they are. Uh, listen to more than two albums by them. Okay, just do me that favor said, don't listen to what's on top 40 radio. Go, go beyond that. Listen to what they've even made in recent years. Amazing. So Toto, their, their score here, their soundtrack is, I mean, unforgettable, you know, talk about Epic. Um, the effects, everything about it just looks awesome. Um, yeah, this movie's got a lot going for it. Patrick Stewart's in it. Fuck. You know, before he went downhill, uh, since, uh, the Picard fan fiction in recent years, uh, I mean, this is before he was even Picard. You've really got a fantastic cast here. Kyle McLaughlin delivers. Um, I mean, everybody's, everybody's on point as weird as everything that's going on is everything's working. Um, still suits. Sure. They're not exactly as described in the books, but I think that they're, they look fucking badass. Max von Sydow's back. Uh, everybody's delivering here. But I will admit that it's a movie that what makes it so great is kind of ineffable. And I know this because it's not like it's just great with Dune fans, you know, people who've read the novel. Um, it's great with people who, who don't know shit about it and they just watch it and they recognize they're seeing something that, for lack of a better phrase, is so handcrafted. You know, and, and, and I mean, it's not like the 92 Dracula where everything is totally practical, no blue screen. There's plenty of that. Um, and some of the effects look a little shoddy today, but there's just something special there that came together in that, that makes it stand out above so many other films. And of course there is that overall cool factor. Um, and, and then the endless quotes that come from it too. So Dune is at my number three. Um, I, you know, with the Dune that's coming out this year, by Denise Villeneuve. I like Villeneuve's work. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually very more than cautiously optimistic about this, uh, movie, but I, you know, I don't think anything's ever going to beat the 84 Dune. Uh, and I even like, you know, look, I like Frank Herbert's Dune, you know, from that, the sci-fi channel made, I like that fine. Um, 
I'm not against other Dune movies getting made, but I just know that none of them are ever going to touch the magic that this movie put together. Now that said, you know, the fact that David Lynch was making this movie meant that he had turned down making return of the Jedi boy. Would I have loved to have seen David Lynch's return of the Jedi. That would have been a hell of a movie, but at the same time, you know, great. Like he got to make Dune, Richard Markhand ended up doing Return of the Jedi. And, you know, we have two great movies out there. <laughs> so it's just as well. Uh, <laughs> now, here's one. My number two spot. And this is as in this is number two. This is right under number one. Uh, and boy, is it slowly creeping on number one. Probably won't ever overtake it, but it's getting there. Uh, I have watched this movie just in case you're thinking, Oh, look at all these movies that are in, you know, stallions top eight. He doesn't like anything new. You know, everything's from like pre two from 2000 or pre 2000 or something like that. You know, everything's from the 20th century. He doesn't like anything new. Oh, contraire. <laughs> I like plenty. That's new. You, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's very rare. You know, there's just not as many good movies made. And part of that, comes down to what I was talking about earlier, where like, say the studios all just wanted their own star Wars back in the late seventies and eighties and nineties, even, um, that they took risks every once in a while today, studios will take risks again. And usually their director will build up such a, you know, repertoire that they'd be willing to let him make whatever the hell he wants to make. Darren Aronofsky is one of those directors. Uh, just like I'd say Villeneuve is as well, which is why, you know, they kind of handed him Blade Runner and Dune and he can make whatever he wants. But Darren Aronofsky, for whatever reason, can make whatever the hell he wants. And I don't want that. That is a whole other episode where we could analyze the works of Darren Aronofsky because his shit gets weird. Um, this is the film that is in my number two spot is the biggest movie he's ever made. Uh, it's also his highest grossing. Um, ironically due to its popularity, I would say it's, it's, it's his most controversial, even though I think his other films are, you know, if you wanted to buy into controversy over what would conventional people think he's trying to say in such a film, this isn't even remotely his most controversial film. Uh, this is a movie that feels incredibly epic, even though if you watch documentaries on its creation, Yes, it is epic, certainly more than, you know, your run everyday rom-com, but there's a lot about it that's actually very small scale, but it doesn't feel that way when you watch it. Um, it is, I think, also surprising to a lot of people because of my uh, stance, <laughs> particularly against a, a lot of biblical matters. Um, I think it'd be a surprise that such a film would stand so tall uh, in my list. Because we are talking about the 2014 epic Noah, starring Russell Crowe. Noah, and of course, I mean, you know, <laughs> well, who appears in, in our list again? None other than Anthony Hopkins, which, by the way, if Mask of Zorro didn't have a sequel, that would easily be in my top eight. But anyway, Anthony Hopkins is here. Uh, we have Emma Watson, of course, Jennifer Connelly, uh, which, boy, the Rocketeer almost makes it into the top eight, just a phenomenal film. Um, Noah by Darren Aronofsky is so, okay, look, is it representative 
of the literal text that appears in the book of Genesis. No, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not really. I mean, it gets to the point of, okay, uh, you know, this, this old guy saves a bunch of animals from this flood that wipes out the bulk of humanity. Did it cover that base? Yeah. Um, but that's about it. Everything else, almost everything else comes from something else. And it's pretty easy to see that the movie is representing a very Kabbalistic as in Kabbalah, a very Kabbalistic view of these events of the creation and so on. And some might want to go so far as to say that it's a very Gnostic view, uh, like, you know, the concept of the Demiurge that's in this movie and so on. Look, you know, if you were looking for the classic tale you were told in Sunday school, this is not it. And it was never going to be it. Not with Darren Aronofsky making it. Okay. But what is here is stunning. And there are concepts in this movie. And I'd have to do a whole separate episode on this movie to break it down. But there are concepts in this movie that I think are nothing less than fascinating. Some of it, I, I kind of feel like is uh, insider information <laughs> that, that I'm amazed would appear on the screen, uh, even though it's kind of getting snuck in. But I, I, I think there, there, there are, there's a lot of, hmm, there are some truths to take away from this movie that I, I'm in awe. Anyone had the balls to put on screen, but it's there. Um, it's another movie where, you know, a perfect 10, and I'd, I'd even rank it higher, you know, again, if I want, if I decided to go higher, uh, the music's great. Clint Mansell's music somewhat understated, but it's there when you need it and it's doing it right. Um, everybody's acting. I mean, come on, it's Russell Crowe. It's Jennifer Connelly. It's Anthony Hopkins. You know what you're getting and it, and it's great. I mean, like they're, they're right on point. I think it's a very bold interpretation of creation. And again, I can't, especially with a budget like this movie had, this was a big budget movie. I'm in awe, you know, that, that some of these ideas would appear, you know, in a big budget film. I mean, even just mention of the Zohar, you know, now granted, they're not calling it the book of Zohar. They're like saying that this mineral, this rock or whatever that can, you know, like start fires. If you just smash it, they called it Zohar. Um, I mean, that, that, that's sort of pointing where Aronofsky is pulling everything from. Uh, but it, it, you know, it comes off very strange, but these are concepts that I just never would have expected would be allowed in a major motion picture. You know, now this is a controversial film for a lot of people. A lot of people think that this movie is part of a, uh, uh, agenda 21, you know, or, or some of these other, you know, depopulation agendas and a bunch of this other, you know, kind of stuff. Um, there are plenty of conspiracy theories around this film. I'll tell you, I think most of those are dead wrong. And not only that, but they're completely missing perhaps some very real conspiracies or, or the real conspiracies that are in this film. Um, I think that there are some, again, there, there's some insider info uh, of certain spiritualities that are on display in this movie. And I'm not necessarily saying they're bad things. Now, if you're Christian, you'd think they're bad. You think they're of Satan or something, but they're there. I know it's probably killing you. Like what? It would just take so long to, to talk about it. <laughs> okay. To, to, to get into it. Uh, but it's, it's clearly pulling a lot from the book of Enoch, which I think is an incredibly important historical text. 
you know, it's, it's pulling from a lot of areas. Uh, I, I was, you know, it's a, it's a movie that boy with, with Blu-ray, you know, with 1080p technology. Um, I am so grateful for that because there are details here that you really can't see otherwise. And I mean, you've got to have the fucking Blu-ray or 4k or whatever, but you've got to have it. Otherwise you don't see it. Like for years, I wanted to know what the fuck is the banner that Noah keeps hanging in this movie, you know, at the beginning of the film and at the end, what is it? And finally I saw what it was, you know, since it came out on Blu-ray. Um, of course it's a singular eye on this hanging banner. It's just an eye with like a red and white uh, bit of iris to it. And I was wondering forever about that. And when I saw it, I was like, ah, okay, that makes perfect sense. And it's amazing too, that the serpent in this almost gets treated like, I mean, it's very low key. Again, there's so much being said in what's not said in this movie, but the serpent very much gets treated as, a heroic character in this, even though you rarely see it, but it's more really even what gets done with the snake skin as much as with the snake. I mean, you could pick apart this movie for the next hundred years and come up with new things of what it is saying, maybe saying, uh, it's an incredibly enigmatic film. And the more knowledge you have about a lot of, you know, say like Kabbalistic texts or of, other things. It's just such a long list. Uh, the more that this movie can mean and the more that in the more meaning you see in the movie, you know, and it's not something that like, Oh, I'm reading into it. Oh yeah. This is like, this movie's, I don't know, pick a film. What's a, pick anything. And you know what will happen a lot of times, like libertarians or anarchists or whatever, like, oh yeah, this has very libertarian thing. No, no, it's made by fucking status. It doesn't have any libertarian themes in it. Stop. You know, <laughs> it's literally made by raping status. Stop that. I'm not saying Darren Aronofsky. I'm saying for other, uh, other things like stuff maybe made by Joss Whedon. Um, so yeah, that, that, that kind of shit drives me nuts, but no, this is stuff that's like actually there. Um, and we know Aronofsky's kind of a weird guy. You watch the fountain, uh, you know, in other films and you get it. But I, I, I think what makes this movie again, what puts it at number two for me. And the, the more I enjoy it, the more I watch is, is the boldness of concepts that get put in this movie. And that somehow it was a big budget movie. Like that just blows my mind. And look, everybody's, everybody's on point as far as, you know, what they, um, you know, what they bring to the film. Aronofsky's direction is phenomenal. Special effects are phenomenal. Um, I mean, hell, you even get Frank Langella in this <laughs> as a voice anyway. Uh, just it's all the right pieces um, and it works. And and it's it's amazing to see. Yeah, again, to see some of these ideas on the big screen, I because I, never in my life did I think I'd ever see them there. So that puts Noah uh, at number two from 2014. Now let's go to number one. Number one is the movie that has not changed. This movie has not changed, has not dropped out of my number one spot since like 2003 when the matrix sequels came out because before then the movie that was at the number one spot was the matrix. And of course, before that was Dune, but anyway, that is the 2000. I keep using the word Epic, but I'm going to use it one more time. The 2000 Epic gladiator also featuring Russell Crowe um, by my, you know, favorite director, 
depending upon what you're talking to me about, because <laughs> really my favorite director is Paul W.S. Anderson. But my favorite director, Ridley Scott, um, firing on all cylinders here with, uh, you know, just one of the biggest movies ever made. Um, a wild success of a film and impressive that it was so successful and it wasn't a science fiction movie. That doesn't mean it wasn't big budget. It was, but it wasn't a science fiction movie. Uh, definitely made Russell Crowe's career, even though I appreciated him in virtuosity, you know, before then, but this put him on the map. Uh, and it also put, you know, these great sword and sandal epics back on the map. This would eventually give us 300. 300 would eventually give us the Spartacus stars TV series. Um, and you know, I, I like, I am so happy that gladiator became a thing. It's a great movie on its own, but it also inspired studios to finally make some more sword and sandal epics. And for that, you know, I'll always be grateful. And we got some doozies out of those as well, but gladiator is certainly, you know, the, the, the movie that brought that all back to four. Um, Russell Crowe, of course, is amazing. You know, not a household name yet when this got made, but he certainly became one after. Uh, the soundtrack, Hans Zimmer, I mean, holy fuck, him and Lisa Gerard basically, you know, <laughs> made their money for the rest of their lives after doing this one. Uh, a tremendous soundtrack uh, with this movie. And, you know, everything everything's there. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is phenomenal. Connie Nielsen, phenomenal. Uh, I mean, this movie made careers for a lot of them as well. Uh, even though Connie Nielsen had been around and she was actually in devil's advocate and so on. Um, but I think that, you know, unlike even, and, and this is why I kind of put it above Ben Hur because this, there's not a weak moment in this movie, like the landing, you know, the, the, the ending, right. They stick the landing. Um, the action is, so, I mean, part of it, you know, comes with what makes it so exciting. Admittedly, part of it comes with Hans Zimmer's phenomenal score. Uh, but I feel like it, it's the first movie where I really felt like Rome was absolutely alive. You know, it, it, Cleopatra comes damn close. But you really felt like you felt the Colosseum in this movie, especially if you saw it in theaters. Um, there is an extended version that has come out in the past 10 years or so. I don't think it really adds that much to the film. I'll take it. I'll take more gladiator. I'm not arguing against it. I'm just saying that it doesn't really improve it uh, in any way as to where there's plenty of times where a director's cut or an unrated cut will, will improve upon a previous film. Um, but no, this movie was already perfection. Uh, and you know, this idea of that one man taking on an empire is just so well done in this film. Um, Rolf Mueller is in it. I mean, he delivers, he would go on to do like Conan after this and every, you know, Conan TV series. I mean, this, this made so many careers and I think proved that Ridley Scott still had it, you know, even after making, you know, alien and, and, or, well, alien, you know, certainly put him on the map as well. But I think a lot of people feel that Ridley Scott is touch and go. And some of his movies were, were downright bombs. Well, gladiator proved that no, he can make great films. He always can. Uh, and he did. The theme of having the hero that isn't power hungry at all, who just wants to get home to his wife and kid. He doesn't want any, he gets offered the entire Roman empire and says no. To me, to this day is such a powerful statement. Um, and, and it's so powerfully presented because uh, then, you know, the emperor 
Marcus Aurelius, you know, just like almost falls to his knees crying, saying, oh, that's why it needs to be you, because you don't want it. I love that to death. That's such a statement. Uh, And there's plenty more in this movie that, I mean, very quotable film uh, also. And it's, it's just priceless in that it has an eminently tragic ending. And at the same time, a beautiful ending, right? Like a happy ending. And, and that's such a blend of emotion to have because you're so sad that, um, you know, the Maximus dies, right? But then he saved the empire or, you know, or he, he returned uh, the empire to a Republic or whatever. I mean, and whatever history actually happened is a different story, but in the movie, it, it makes for this incredibly powerful emotion at the end where you're so relieved about, you know, Commodus dying, but then Maximus dies too. And I mean, in that sense, it plays like very primal storytelling. Like we've talked about in previous sovereign at the movies, it's all there. Like Ridley Scott delivered an absolutely perfect film. Um, and that's why nothing's ever really unseated it because it's, it's just perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. Everything works. Oliver Reed's final performance in this is, is proximal. Uh, awesome. Uh, the cinematography is, is just so top notch. You feel every hit, everything just feels visceral, gritty. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it's an achievement. You know, I mean, some, like I said, the Oscars, the Academy Awards, you know, like they, they really don't mean shit. But every once in a while, even Hollywood can't ignore, you know, uh, something. And and they just have to say, God damn it, that was amazing. And I think that's because, look, this this took Best Picture. (laughs) And of course it did, right? I mean, like you just couldn't ignore it because it was so perfect. You know, I mean, the only other movie before that, I think that, that you could make that argument with is like Braveheart, where... Yeah, this doesn't fit in with the, you know, entertainment establishments, you know, what, what they want in a film. Um, but it's just so amazing. And so many people are nuts about it. If you didn't have it win the Academy Awards, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, you're just going to show the, the whole industry, the sham that you are. And so it's, it's, it's an undeniable film. And I. Like, I, I can't think of the person I've had watch it who didn't go, holy shit, and, like, even, like, maybe raise their fist at the end. You know, and that's a rare movie, too, to be able to pull that off, but also still be deep and meaningful, which there's a lot of deep and meaningful stuff in this. I mean, at, you know, at the end of the movie, when, when Connie Nielsen's character says, who will help me carry him? When I, when I saw this in theaters, um, I, I, I swear almost everybody in, in the movie theater, like kind of budged to like stand up. <laughs> it's like, yeah, everybody wanted to carry him. And I think every time I watch the movie, when I hear that line at the end, I, I instantly think the same thing. Like, I just want to, yeah, I'll, I'll help. I'll help. <laughs> you know, it's what, what a, what a life. And it's like Ben Hur where it covers, you know, basically almost, it feels like multiple lifetimes for one character's life. Uh, and it just works on that, man. Um, the perfect movie, just the perfect movie. So there's my number one. And it is, it is, it sits at the top of the heap uh, for me. It has other like deep, meaningful things for me as well. Um, I mean, anytime you're doing a list like this, there's subjectivity that get, that is involved. We can objectively say that gladiator is a perfect film production wise, acting wise, etc. by all those metrics. But subjectively, it also has deep things for me as well. 
uh, particularly, you know, with the gladiatorial moments and, and other things, but that those are other stories. So I think that will do it for this episode. I'm not surprised that we ended up recording for almost two hours here because we're talking about the eight greatest movies ever made. How can, you know, each one of them deserves a two hour episode at least, right? Cause each one deserves a documentary. Um, but I think that there was a, a lot to cover here and get into. Uh, and I appreciate the question. Like I said, there are a lot of movies, you know, there, there are other movies that you, that years ago would have been in this list in place of what's here. Like Noah didn't exist until 2014. But again, there are a lot of movies that could have been on this list uh, that, you know, if like if I did a top 25, I mean, you know, we'd add so much more. And also there's the rule of no franchise films, because, again, this would have easily been filled in with Star Trek, Star Wars, Alien, um, I mean, Rocky even, you know, I mean, like there, there'd be so many uh, Masks of Like I said, there's so many films that would fill out this list so quickly uh, if I included that. And, you know, I also recognize that most people, minus maybe Gladiator and Ben-Hur, most people would probably, I mean, I, I can't imagine they'd put a lot of these films and any of these films in their top eight. Um, so I know there's some subjectivity involved, but the one thing I think you can objectively say about every one of these movies in the top eight is that each one is unique or each one is, or, or if they're not unique, they're at least the prototype for what came after. Uh and in that sense, I think this is a special list, no matter whether you agree with it or disagree with it. I think this is an incredibly special list of movies that there's just nothing else quite like it out there. And, you know, is that ultimately, is that like my unconscious metric for films? Maybe <laughs> I'm open to that, that that's the case. Uh, but if so, it's worth checking these out because where else are you going to see anything like well, I will wrap this up with that and more Sovereign Tech to come. I will see all of you woo, on the other side.